And well, I, I just want to share that uh, when we think about international missions, thanks, Scott. Appreciate it, man. Um, we, in addition to the designated giving that will be going uh, to help with. Uh, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, we are in a position once again as a church where uh, we will be exceeding uh, our budget. Um, and, you know, in a year where we sent 30-something committed members to start a new church, autonomous church, and uh, we've had many members uh, who are committed move, uh, I just praise God that we're in the position that we are in where we will exceed our budget. And uh, we anticipate exceeding our budget uh, by a decent amount. And if you were at our town hall, our stewardship team shared that uh, half of that will be going towards uh, accelerating our debt reduction to put us in a position we want to be in for the future. Uh, and then 25% that I'll be going to some administrative priorities uh, around here, and then the remaining 25% will go uh, to supplement uh, whatever is being given towards the International Mission Board Lottie Moon Christmas offering. In the past few years, we tried to be a little more strategic about our missions giving, and while we give to the cooperative program uh, in a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, and some of that goes to uh, the International Mission Board, the reality is half of IMB's budget uh, comes from the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And so last year, uh, we gave the most we've ever given in the history of a church, over $80,000, and we're hopeful that we can be close to that uh, this year as well. So uh, as you uh, enter into the season, we pray that God uh, would stir in your heart if you're capable to give above and beyond uh, to not only uh, what God is doing through this church, but to uh, what is being done to send the gospel across the nations. Well, it is going to be an exciting month. We start a series next Sunday called uh, Let Earth Receive Her King as we move into Mark chapter 8 and chapter 9. And during those four weeks, we're going to have some uh, fun Sundays. Next Sunday, we'll have a full choir uh, joining us in all three uh, services. So uh, we are excited about that. And then the following Sunday, we'll have another choir um, that's height as much... Uh shorter on average. Uh, that'll be our children's uh, choir coming to join and sing us for us on December 19th. And then on December 24th, it's Christmas Eve, and so uh, hopefully you're already inviting people to join you uh, for our Christmas Eve services. We'll have Christmas Eve candlelight and communion services at 4 o'clock, 5.15, and 6.30, unless it says otherwise in the bulletin, and I just messed it up, but I'm pretty sure those are the times. Uh, there will be nursery available during the 4 o'clock service that evening, and then on December 26th and January 2nd, we're going to say this 100 times, too, but not everybody's going to know this. We're only having a 9.30 and 11 o'clock service, and there will be no life groups meeting on campus on those two Sundays. But today, uh, we wrap up our series, He is Greater Than Tradition, as we are in Mark chapter 8, verse 13 through 20. You're welcome to open up your Bible or turn on your Bible to Mark chapter 8, verse 13 through 20. And we're talking about influencers. Now, if you're younger, you probably know what an influencer is today. It's somebody um, who essentially at least supplements, or maybe that's their whole job, uh, is to influence people. And so they're often paid uh, by companies to promote their products or whatever uh, it may be because of the influence they have. Now, I've been told that my 100 Instagram followers do not necessitate me being able uh, to uh, quit my day job and become an influencer. But the reality is this exists. This is a powerful way that people are motivated to buy things, uh, to change who they are because of the influence of others. And uh, while we might think it's a relatively new thing, the truth is there have been influencers since the beginning of time, even those who that's their career, that's how they largely spend their time. And that was true during Jesus's day. And we're going to read about that right now in Mark chapter 8, verse 13 through 21. It says, and he left them 
got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And he said to them, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? The illustration of leaven was one that was commonly used in this day as an illustration of influence, and usually it carried with it a negative connotation. Now, most people made their own bread in that day, so this illustration was easily understood for them. Yeast would be produced by keeping back a piece of the previous week's dough, storing it, adding juices to promote the process of fermentation. And it was actually a Jewish custom of clearing the home of yeast before Passover was celebrated to ensure no yeast leavens the bread. Exodus chapter 12, verse 14 and 15 describes this. It says, this shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leaven from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So to symbolize the purity of Israel and the purity of God, they would be very diligent in get, getting rid of all leaven in the house so as not to compromise the unleavened bread. So hopefully you get the idea that this leaven would actually, you know, affect the batch of bread. And in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is referring to bad leaven in his conversation with the disciples about uh, the Pharisees and, um, you know, about Herod. Now, Matthew actually says in chapter 16, verse 6, that he said, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees instead of Herod. So the problem of the Sadducees and the Herodians is, is actually pretty similar. Why Mark said Herod and Matthew said the Sadducees, we really are not fully sure. But the context does demonstrate that both are applicable. And the main point is not the specific issues of each group, but the fact that each of these groups are actually taking away from the purity of hearing and obeying God's word. And so I think it's good to look at each of these three groups to help us understand the problem they face and that we still face today. So first, the Pharisees. Luke chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, tells us a little bit more about the problem with the Pharisees. In Luke chapter 12, verse 1, it says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. The leaven of the Pharisees was hypocrisy. The problem with the Pharisees was hypocrisy. They were playing a part. Who they were projecting themselves to be was not actually who they were in their hearts. And so they, they were obsessed with religion and they were obsessed with piety, but really that was just justification or just validation for where they actually knew that they stood with God. And so there was an inconsistency about the Pharisees and their application of the law and their teaching that came with this. 
the ultimate problem of the Pharisees is that they did not really listen to God. Now, we also have the Herodians. They did not want a Davidic king, which many believe the Old Testament was saying was going to come because they were loyal to Herod. And they wanted him to have the throne because with Herod brought them success. And so there was a moral relativism that was born out of this idea of the success of Herod. They were very liberal. They were very secular. They were very worldly. And their political nationalistic views actually trumped their listening to God's word. Again, with the Herodians, the greatest problem was they weren't really listening to God. The Sadducees, similar to the Herodians, uh, were wealthy. They were aristocratic families. And the high priest was actually selected from the Sadducees. They were conservative, only believing in the Torah, rejecting the oral law. But their wealth caused them to compromise much of their commitment to the scriptures. And they would actually deny the resurrection and deny that God still spoke. And they weren't really listening to God because they, too, wanted earthly prosperity. All these groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, had lenses on when it came to their hearing, their reading, and their obeying the word of God. And Jesus is warning about all of these things creeping in. And all kinds of things can creep in and influence the church, influence believers, in a way that hinders the pure hearing and obeying of God's word. There might be an obsession about a particular theological issue. There might be an obsession about a particular way of doing church. There might be an obsession about a particular leader, obsession about a particular program, or obsession about a particular thing that we want in life. All these things affect our hearing and our obeying the word of God. But from this text and from my reading of church history and from my observation of culture, I want to warn and focus on three major Things that can creep in and corrupt the hearing and obeying the word of God that can be a leaven to us. Three things that corrupt people hearing and obeying God's word. The first is legalism. Legalism. Simply stated, legalism is excessive adherence to a law or a formula. Laws serve a purpose, whether they're God's laws or they're man's laws, there is a purpose behind the laws. And to be legalistic is to overlook that purpose as you look to the law. To be legalistic would be someone who enforces speeding. And you pull someone over who's speeding and you find out they have a family member who is bleeding to the point of their life being in jeopardy. And to make them stop, make them wait, Maybe to apprehend them because of their reckless driving and neglect the reason for which they were driving was ultimately for the safety and protection of someone. Forgetting the purpose of the law. That's a much different thing than when we're speeding because we're frustrated in John Sims. But, you know, the problem with legalistic faith is that it overlooks why the law is given. I'd invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Uh, that's a few books back in the New Testament. We're going to have it on the screen as well if you're not familiar with turning there. And I'm going to read Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 through 9. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 through 9 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. Some of you granola moms are like, yeah, that's not what he's talking about. That's not his main point. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. 
you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Matt Chandler says that it's for freedom that you have been set free, which means not only have we been saved from something, but we have been saved to something. As Christians, it's not just that we've been saved from sin, that we've been saved from hell, but we have been saved to Christ, and we have been saved to freedom in Christ. We are supposed to be people who are free. That is the purpose of Christ. We are free to be free. And so Paul says, stand firm, therefore. He uses military language to have this military resolve that you are going to be attacked and you must stand firm. Now, often when we think about standing firm as Christians, we think about the sins and the dangers of this world and, you know, the evils of this world, and we don't necessarily think that religion or misunderstanding of religion might be what we have to stand firm and stand on guard for. But spiritual maturity is standing firm in the freedom that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the crowd that Paul is addressing in Galatians is coming out of the legalism that Jesus is confronting in Mark chapter 8. And Paul says to them in Galatians, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, a yoke would be a pattern of teaching, a system of, of, of faith. And it usually promised righteousness. It usually promised right relationship with God. And Paul is saying, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't submit again to a yoke that says, you must do all these things. And you can't do any of these things. And that's the only way that you can be right with God. And so you're enslaved, you're burdened, you're worn down because of it. And Paul says, if you accept circumcision, you are to keep the whole law. He's not saying that if you've been circumcised, then you have to keep the whole law. But he's saying, if you believe that circumcision is a requirement for righteousness, then you need to believe that all of the law is a requirement for righteousness. So to be right with God, you have to keep all of the law. And I love you, but you can't. And you don't. And anyone sitting next to you would probably have great examples of how you don't. And you know that you don't. And the Pharisees knew that they didn't. And so they needed to mask that. And so they used their man-made religion and man-made deviation of the laws of God to build themselves up to ignore where they actually stood with God. And they began to say, these things make me righteous. And when you have said these rules make me righteous, Paul says, you say, I don't need Jesus for righteousness. You see, it's our hope and the finished work of Christ and the return of Christ that is our righteousness. And Paul says to this crowd, he says, you have fallen away from the grace of the gospel which you received. He's reminding them of the gospel. Now there are those who desert the gospel and have nothing to do with Christ again. That's not necessarily who he's talking about. He's talking about those who are, who are you know, wavering in, in their commitment to the gospel. But there are those who do, and, and 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 says, those who go out from us, they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But he's saying to this group who maybe they never believed the gospel or maybe they're just erring, he says, you now believe a lie. Who, who led you to believe that these things make you righteous? 
and you need to evaluate it because it's not from the one who called you. It's not from Jesus. He says, faith working through love, that's what counts. He's using accounting language, a ledger, and he says, the only thing that really makes you righteous is faith working through love. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to live for the gospel. You see, Christianity, and I say this a lot, is a response. We don't work to earn God's grace and favor and love. We experience God's grace and favor and love, and we respond with works. We respond with obedience. That's the motivation of the Christian life. That's what it means to be a Christian. But this legalism creeps in, and we need to stand firm here because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. There's another way that we err here, and that is liberalism. So if legalism is on this side where we obsess about the law and forget the purpose of the law, then liberalism is probably a response to that or at least far away from that. Liberalism is the belief that many traditional beliefs are dispensable, invalidated by modern thought, or liable to change. Now, once again, laws serve a purpose, and traditions even serve a purpose. And to be liberal is to have a loose grip on those laws and those traditions. Now, you know, laws certainly should not be obsessed about. We've seen that, and we can err in that. And if that's the case, then traditions, which aren't the laws of God, certainly should not be obsessed about, and we can err in that. But often what happens in, in what we would call liberalism here, the problem here is that it, in its run away from law and tradition, in its response to law and traditions, in its response to legalism, also overlooks the purpose of the law and the traditions. So I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, that'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul addresses where this is taken, the church, at Corinth. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through 8. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So there's a sexual immorality that is going on in the Corinthian church. Sexual, sexual immorality is sex being used any way other than what God designed. God designed for a man and woman in the covenant of marriage uh, to use sex for the purpose of procreation and enjoyment. In this instance, a man is now with his father's wife, has his father's wife. Since he said father's wife and not mother, I would strongly suggest that his father is either, either a widower or is divorced and is remarried. And this man is now with that woman. It doesn't say if his father is alive or not. But at the very least, you can assume that the son is now with his father's wife and the two of them are not married. 
It says has, so this is not a one-night stand with repentance. This is an active, ongoing relationship. And Paul says, it's going on among you. You know about it, church at Corinth. And this is something that isn't even socially acceptable among those who are involved in cult practices. And here, I want you to see the problem with the approach of the church of Corinth and the approach of many Christians. We think that we don't deal with that kind of stuff. We don't deal with sin because we're humble and loving and kind. Paul says we don't deal with it because we're arrogant. You see, they are boasting about how accepting they are of this sin and this person And they should be mourning, Paul says. Sin should break our heart. Now, I want you to understand, this isn't talking about someone who visits a church or visits a Bible study who hasn't been following the Lord or we don't really know and they have sin in their life. This is talking about somebody who was one of them and who has erred and is clearly going astray. When I was in Bible college working on my undergraduate, a friend of mine called me who was still a member of the church that I'd gotten baptized in when I was in high school. And he went one Sunday night to, they had like Sunday night worship services and it would be more of a, you know, if you've ever been to Sunday night, hardly anybody's there, okay? And so it would be more of like the church family and they would would even talk about family business, you know, kind of things. And one Sunday, the pastor at the conclusion of the service or associate pastor at the conclusion of the service said, hey, we have a matter we wanna bring to your attention. We have this deacon and they, they, most of the people knew who this deacon was, and he has left his wife. And, you know, he's not, some friends of his went to him and said, hey, man, what you're doing's wrong. You need to repent. You need to go back to your wife. You know, he was in an affair, and he didn't respond. And so eventually, you know, it got to the pastor, and the pastor met with him, and, and he didn't respond, and he wasn't coming anymore. And so they said, we just want you to know, you know, that he's not a deacon anymore, and we're actually removing him from membership, but... You know, you reach out to him. Well, his cousin came up to him and punched the pastor in the face for doing this. And so my friend called and said, isn't that wrong what the pastor did? And I said, well, I don't know that I would have done it that way. I certainly wouldn't in a church our size, this church family. But he wasn't wrong because that's actually what the scripture talks about doing as the church. Now, how he said it and how he delivered it, I don't know, but... How he handled it and what he was trying to, excuse me, what he did and what he was trying to do was honoring God. Now, here's the reality. If we do this, we'll be labeled as prideful, we'll be labeled as arrogant, we'll be labeled as judgmental, we'll be labeled as thinking we are holier than thou, at least by some. And again, besides, shouldn't the church be the place that sinners are accepted? But when it comes to these matters, what is the authority? Is it what people think of us? Is it what we as a leader ensures that more people will stay? Or is it the word of God? Is it God that is of authority? Now, this is why Paul says, hey, here's what you should do in this situation. He's not there, but he says, here's the decision. At your next worship gathering, the next time you assemble, which, how is that possible? Because to be a Christian, you don't have to go to church, right? Right? Yeah, you actually should. Sorry, 
I'm a little salty about the silliness and selfishness that, uh, of this whole, I'm following Jesus and I'm neglecting pretty much all of the New Testament uh, mentality, but that's okay. Because you can't read the New Testament. Uh, I keep going even though I said I'm salty. You can't read the New Testament and think God doesn't expect to be, me to be a part of biblical community. And you also can't read that same New Testament without realizing that he has expectations for us as members of that biblical community and our participation in it. And one of those expectations is dealing with other believers who are caught in sin. Now, Paul eventually goes on to say, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And this isn't the only place where we read something like this in the New Testament. Jesus basically says that in Matthew chapter 18. And then when Paul is talking to Timothy in 1 Timothy, he says, Hymenaeus and Alexander have shipwrecked the faith and I've handed them over to Satan. Now, how would you like to be, you know, in the Bible as the example of people who have been handed over to Satan forever? But Now, why does Jesus say this and why does Paul say this? Well, Paul makes it very clear, his aim here in chapter five of 1 Corinthians, so that he may be saved in the Lord. You see, while people are being coddled, while people feel like it's okay to keep ignoring or rejecting God's will, while they feel affirmed by their fellow Christians for doing what is wrong, they head further towards destruction of themselves and of others. But when they are confronted in love and they still pursue flesh, and we say very clearly, you are not seeking God here, then they are left to their own to say, these people do not affirm what I'm doing, and they're thinking about that at some point, or they just run. I love the way Eugene Peterson says this in the message, but better be devastation and embarrassment than damnation. You want him on his feet and forgiven before the master on the day of judgment. He's saying you want them to see where they stand with God and what they're doing because the greater concern is not that sexual sin or whatever sin it might be. It might be that this person really isn't living for God. And I want them to see, I don't know that you're living for God if you're dishonoring him in this thing. But the church at Corinth, and I would say most churches, including ours, would rather that person go on with their bad self as long as we can avoid an awkward conversation, as long as we don't lose friends, or as long as our image and influence isn't perceived as judgmental. This is not love. It is arrogant. It is self-seeking. And you see the consequences of this mentality towards sin is not just affecting this guy. It affects the whole body. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Where sin is accepted, sin will become abundant. Where sin is accepted, sin will become abundant. And it becomes a part of the DNA of a church. It becomes a part of the DNA of a community of believers. And children begin to see us turning a blind eye to this clear disobedience of the Lord, and it begins to affect what they apply to their lives. You see, Christ not only forgave you from your sins, he freed you from your sins, and we need to call each other to walk into the freedom that Christ has called us to. We are no longer slaves to sin. But we must stand firm. We must watch out because it leavens that little leaven leavens the whole lump. The third thing I wanna say, and I'm gonna say this one quickly because uh, this is part of the Her Herodians and Sadducees, but um, I talk about this all the time, so I don't feel like I need to talk about that much. It's prosperity. Prosperity is the success or the state of success, especially, especially financial or material success. Now, once again, laws and 
traditions serve a purpose. And laws and traditions are ultimately for our prosperity. They are for our good. But to focus on prosperity over God's purpose is a problem. To focus on how we define prosperity specifically, because then we begin to redefine what is for our good. And we begin to redefine what God's purpose is. Paul addresses this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says this is happening amongst the church. 1 Timothy 6 verse 3 through 5. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And listen to what Paul says why he's doing it. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. You see, we think people who believe in this... uh, because of ignorance. We think, oh, maybe some of the Bible's hard to understand, so that's why they live more for earthly prosperity, or maybe they're just younger in their faith, or, or maybe it's diversity. Certain personalities are attracted more to that. But the primary reason that people begin to elevate prosperity over purpose of God is that we want what we want out of life. And we are willing to twist God's will and God's word to justify our pursuit of what we want, whether we know a little or whether we know a lot. Now, I don't know about you, but my children often think they know better than me. And I probably thought I knew better than my mom. But it's different, and that that just kind of happens. But what if my children all took my rules, twisted my rules to justify what they wanted? You see, that's what we're doing when we elevate the prosperity that we want over the purpose of God for our life. And that is what Paul is saying here. He says, they think godliness will bring them gain. They are using God to get what they want out of this life. And then he says in verse six, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Pursuing God with a contentment is a prosperity that earthly prosperity can't match. But we have to be careful, especially in a Western affluent culture, because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So legalism, liberalism, prosperity are the common ways that you see corruption in our understanding of what it means to live as a believer. There are 11 that begins to ruin the whole batch. There are others, but these are the common ones. And we must watch out. We must stand firm. We must confront to use the words of Scripture because these errors are an insult to God and they are a hindrance to us and to others. The mentality that is pervasive in our culture is live and let live, largely based on the fact that we're less communal than we have been in the history of this country or than they are in other places in this world. And most Christians take this approach as well. So for various reasons that I've alluded to, we often don't get in the way. We don't say anything about errors in doctrine that we hear or errors in living that we see. And I get that we don't like conflict. I get that it's uncomfortable. I get that it's just work. But I'll say this, if you keep saying you don't like conflict, eventually you are saying you're okay with Satan winning and people hurting. If you keep saying you don't like conflict, eventually you are okay with Satan winning and people hurting. Listen, it should be done with Christ's likeness and love, gentleness, watching out for yourself. And we must continually be evaluating ourselves. You know, we live in this day, I don't know how red you are, but um, 
Sorry, I didn't mean that. It sounded kind of insulting. I, I don't know. But there's, there's the deconstruction movement that's going on really in our country, but also everywhere and in faith. And, and honestly, you know, there's some good that comes from uh, a deconstruction because we really evaluate how things are and some things need to be torn down. But you know, the problem that I have with the deconstruction movement is a lot of people are all about deconstruction without deconstructing the sin in their lives first. And you know, before we approach legalism, before we approach liberalism, prosperity, before we really approach the ministry of the word, we need to be people who are really evaluating ourselves. And that brings me to the last thing to address from this text. The disciples, when Jesus talks about the leaven of these groups, they then began discussing with one another that they don't have any bread. Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 11 and 12, how is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You see, this whole interaction is in close connection with the scene Mark just described in chapter eight of the feeding of the multitude. And then the interaction between the Pharisees and Jesus about a sign. And then Jesus says this and they're like, oh yeah, we only have one loaf of bread. And they become consumed with that. Now, it happens to also be the one loaf of bread that Jesus miraculously provided for them that they now have left over. And I feel like that's how we are often, right? Like Jesus provides the miracle in our life. We only have one loaf of bread left. Jesus is telling us about how we should be focused on ministry. And, he, and we're like, yeah, but I only have one loaf of bread. And he's like, how did you get that bread in the first place? It was for me. And so why are you worried about bread? Jesus wants them to move away from worrying about bread and thinking about bread that he clearly provides to thinking about the word of God going forward. You see, worrying more about bread than the word of God is really a failure to realize who God is. Worrying more about bread, and you can obviously, you know, substitute dough, money, whatever it might be that you're worried about. Worrying more about bread than the word of God is a failure to realize who God is. And it's why a lot of people aren't living their lives the way God has called us to because we are worried about where our bread is going to come from. And if we're not careful, it turns into idolatry. Deuteronomy chapter eight, that's what God is saying to the Israelites. He says to them, the whole commandment I command you today that you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply. That's what brings your prosperity is doing my word. And go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And the Israelites would forget where that bread came from. And when God didn't come through when and where they wanted, they'd build idols. And this is a tension for all believers to really trust in the sufficiency of God's word and God's purpose for our life. And so we're tempted to be attracted to the kind of false teaching that says you need more than Jesus. And we're tempted to be distracted by our needs and our wants so that we don't revolve our life around Jesus and the sufficiency of his word. I performed a funeral service for a sister in Christ of ours, Betty McNabb, on Friday, and in her Bible was written, faith is, believe who God is, believe what he says, believe what he has done. And when you believe who God is, and you believe what God says, 
and you believe in what he has done, namely in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then that is what fuels our faith. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I want my influence to be Jesus Christ. I want my influence to be the gospel, the good news of Christ, that our worth does not come from do's and don'ts, and that we can trust him and love each other and point each other to Christ when we err, and that his purpose for my life is better than anything I might define as purpose or prosperity. And so when we study the Bible, we must always point back to the centrality of the gospel of Christ in our lives, in our families. While we might want our children to behave and work, we want to point them to our identity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In our friendships, we wanna love people and point them more to what God wants for them than what we want out of them. And in my head, I need to be reminded that I did nothing, I did absolutely nothing for the cross of Jesus Christ. And so no man or woman, pastor, whoever can declare my value. My value has been declared in the cross of Jesus Christ. It does not hinge on how well I do and the rest of my life lived is a life that says Jesus is enough for me and I'm gonna live in a response that he has declared me worthy. Keep that in view. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you that it declares fallen people worthy to be called sons and daughters of God. The only reason that I am where I am today, and Lord, I am prone to wander, as the hymn says, I feel it, is hither by your help I have come. So God, help me not to rely on my own strength. Help me not to deviate from just love that you have shown to me and help me to live every day, every hour, every second in response to the cross of Jesus Christ. May we as your people love and build each other up and point others in our community to the goodness of Jesus Christ. May that be central. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.